This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Olsher. Another edition here of Reinvention Radio. Steve Olsher hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello. Hello. Mary Goulet. Richie Ote. What's up, babies? What's going on? How are you? Really, really good. And uh, joined in studio by Brenna Edelman. We'll get to you. You in the second here. Excited to have you here. Say hello, at least. Just, just Hi. Yeah. Thank hey. you for having me. Yeah, there we go. Hi. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome, Thanks. welcome. All right. So... I don't know if it's just me, Wade, but that feels a little hot on the yeah. uh, on the volume of the input there. But maybe it's just me. All right, so uh, I want to do uh, a couple quick things before we jump into today's episode. Number one, uh, I really just want to say thank you to Susan for leaving uh, an awesome review here on the show. And uh, if you leave a review on the show, we'll do our best to share that with our lovely folks who tune in, What'd she in say? week out. So she said, "Real." Honest and informative. Those are three good adjectives. I will we'll accept those. That was my part. What's yours? Ah, I'm new to this show. Only listened to two episodes so far. But I love how real, honest, and informative it is regardless of the topic. I feel like this is a show I'll be able to really learn a lot through, laugh while I'm doing it, and feel like I'm truly beating to my own heart's drum and not the status quo. Thanks, Steve, Mary, and Mike. Awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, yeah, she really hurt me good. <laughs> so, Richie, you are Mike now. but um, Or Wade, you are Mike. Or one of those, somebody's Mike here. But uh, Susan, Susan, really appreciate that. Thank you so much for the real, honest, and informative review of Reinvention Radio. Much appreciated. And, uh, of course, we'd leave, we would love to read yours next. So whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, leave us a review. We read them. We love them. And uh, we'll share some of those here on the air as well. All right, so let's let's do this because we got uh, we got a a full God, we got a, a full show today with lots to cover, and uh, and and what a timely topic, really. I mean, just given everything that is going on in the world, what a what a, what a timely topic this is. So, uh, Brenda, let me let me have you do this. Let me have you introduce yourself and uh, and just share. Um, we don't want to give too much away, but we're going to be talking about reinventing forgiveness, I think, is where we ended up landing with that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. where we ended yep. up landing. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you were doing before the work that you're doing now. So where where did you come from? How did you get to this this point? And let's not give away the the big, 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 big story of why you do what you do. But I'm just curious, like, what your background is, and, and let's get everybody familiar with you. Okay, well, I grew up in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. With a wannabe Italian father who uh, taught me how to drive a Cadillac when I was six and how to shoot a gun when I was 10. Really? A bohemian artist mom who took me traveling with her all over the world and read Shakespeare to me from the time I was three years old. It's a bedtime story, big characters, big love. But I was also, you know, the emotional caretaker for my parents who had a really love, like a love-hate relationship. Mm. And I was kind of sleepwalking through life. I was living in New York and, um, you know, just kind of doing what everybody does, getting up, going to work, going to acting class, and uh, and trying to be there for my parents in a way that they weren't there for themselves, kind of like being the husband to my mom and the the wife to my dad, meeting their emotional needs. Mm. 
So what was that the goal though? Was did you want to be an actor? Was that yes. always that was the goal? I started acting when I was little. I went to this like dance tap dancing and singing school uh, and performed in Carnegie Recital Hall when I was about ten, and just getting on stage and hearing the applause and the laughter made me really know that you know it was like contagious, like mm-hmm. moving people, mm-hmm. and and it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Richard, you did some acting for a while. You actually had some pretty good gigs for those who don't know, right? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, it was. But are, it was you mo- on I, are you on IMDb? Yeah, I think just for a couple things, small <laughs> things. I mostly liked behind the camera stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought I wanted to be an actor until I realized. No, I, I think more like a director producer. It's mm-hmm. probably why I turned into an entrepreneur instead. <laughs> but I yeah. love the way the world's come full circle now because now, I mean, documentaries are my favorite and or. Um, actual shows like we'll yeah. learn more about what you do like why haven't we done it, a reinvention radio documentary like of all of our cool mm. guests that we've had on that would be like a, a day in be, the life of right that yeah. would be killer man because it's so different it's like what you alluded to you get instantaneous feedback on a stage theater is so amazing like yeah that. theaters mm-hmm. like you get it instantly and you know if it's hitting or if it's not <laughs> but an actor it's like okay cut now we get it from the other angle now you get it like you might be hearing something 30 times by the time they're Mm -hmm. done. Yeah. So, Brenda, let me ask you this then. So, I mean, odd jobs, this, that, and the other. Odd jobs. I was was working in retail in Manhattan, Saks Fifth Avenue, men's accessories, and, and, you know, probably doing promotional modeling, things like that. And I had actually just moved from New York to Los Angeles. I had fallen in love when the big thing happened that we're not revealing yet. And I was like, that's it, I'm getting out of retail. You know, I have to make my dreams come first. And then something happened that kind of stopped everything in my life. Yeah. Nine months, ten months after I moved. So nine, ten months after you moved from New York to L.A. Mm-hmm. to try to make things happen. Yeah, and I fell in love, so that it was nice. It was a nice transition. So you he, fell he in love in when LA. you literally He was in L.A. Oh, yeah. okay, cool. And so I was like, okay, well, the universe is opening up for me to go to – go after my dreams, mm-hmm. get away with, from my parents in some yeah. ways. Yeah. In some ways. And then... And then, boy, did I. Um, so it, it was 1995, and it was so funny because I literally was in a weekend workshop about going after your dreams, and I'm like, that's it. I'm quitting this management management position in retail. And, and, uh, and I signed up for this workshop, and I came home, and I was high, and I'm like, that's it. I'm going to do it, going after my dreams. And my fiancé at the time, you know, um, as soon as I got home, said, well, first of all, the place was really clean. His son was so quiet in the other room. I'm like, this is amazing. I should spend the day away more often. Mm. <laughs> and uh, he told me that my mother was dead and that um, so- my father was involved, but he didn't know how. And immediately... In my heart, I knew that my father was responsible, but I loved my father so much that I quickly moved into denial, which is, you know, mm-hmm. what I deal with in the first step of my uh, forgiveness process, moving out of denial. Mm-hmm. So your fiancé at the time got a call. Fun, fun for him to hold that in. Uh yeah, he got. He actually. Well, it gets it, this. I don't usually talk about, which is great because I have a one woman show. But there's only so much I can put in that. Um, he got a call from my brother, who's my half brother, saying that he got a really 
disturbing message in the middle of the night from my father, his stepfather, saying that that our mother was dead, he should come over, and that he didn't go over. And this all unfolded, mm-hmm. and then and then I immediately, uh, and that the cops wanted to talk to me, and I immediately, uh, well, I went to call my father. He wasn't there, and uh, they picked up his, the cops picked up his phone and said that he couldn't talk to me. Uh, uh, my father couldn't talk to me. And so I was kind of left with what is going on. And I flew to New York the next day. And then my father was silent, not saying anything. So was he in custody at this point or was he? You no, know, it's interesting the way the system is. He wasn't in custody because it has to go through like a grand jury process and everything like that. He actually didn't go to prison for a year. But the house that I grew up in was, you know, cordoned Wait, off. but mom was dead in the house. So, okay, so let me back backtrack. My father's attorney called the police and said there's a dead body in the house. And then my father was told not to speak. And so they were trying to make it like it, there was a break-in, but my father had left this message on my brother's machine that let everyone know something more happened. And it was eight hours after my mother's death, that the cops were called. And so there was a cleanup. My father, who taught me how to shoot a gun, you know, his gun was gone. All the guns he owns were gone. They were gone, and there was a cleanup. And so it took time for... So my mother was no longer there by the time I arrived in New York the next day. So she had been shot. She had been... Oh, here we go. Sorry. Yeah. She was shot in the head, point blank range. Shot in the head. And my father claimed it was an accident. So obviously, then we moved away from the break-in story. Now we're saying he did shoot him, but it was her. But it was an accident. He actually never said I shot her. Uh, when my brother and I went to see him, because he wasn't in custody, he was actually staying at my grandmother's house, the, another house that he owned, and he told us that he was. They were they were fighting for days, and he didn't want to listen anymore. He went upstairs. The next thing he knows, it, it's dark. And there's the gun, and it went off, and he don't know, he didn't know who pulled the trigger. He didn't know how he raised up his hand and put it to her head. He didn't and say he did trigger. it. Well, obviously, though, he did. Obviously, so, but he didn't say it. And so what I was hanging on to in that moment, because I didn't know at that point that it was in the head, I was like, oh, they were fighting, they were struggling, it went off, was that, well, maybe, maybe that happened. And then when I talked mm-hmm. to the cops, they said it was point-blank range in the head. And then I was devastated. And my father never spoke about it. And uh, But he did clean up the scene. No guns found, no blood found. There's a lot still of unanswered questions. How do you questions. shoot someone in point-blank range? And, and no blood? Well, he had, he had a lawyer that was mob-related there. There was a cleanup. His gun was gone. All his guns were gone. There were eight hours before the police were called. I actually have another theory that she was killed someplace else and then brought to the house. Um, that would make more sense. But, but if the cops no... never like explored that. And honestly, at the time, I wasn't like, but explore this. I was caught mm-hmm. in. I hate my father. I love my father. Where's my mother? You know. Oh yeah, and there's a child. The last thing you want to Even believe is that that happened. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I well, moved right into like, well, maybe there's something true. And it was only after I, my father, my fa- my father sh- served. 
a one and a half to five year sentence on involuntary manslaughter because oh. the murder weapon wow. disappeared. Got one out in half. two and a half years. Wow. But only then did I decide to take him to court with my brother for the wrongful death. And at that time, I looked at the evidence because I was still holding on to there was a struggle with the gun. And then I saw that there was no uh, gunpowder like in the in the reports, there was no gunpowder. I think it was, I guess, on my mother's hands or something like that. You know, it would have to be on her body. It would have to be on his body. I mean, somewhere there's going to be. But they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't. The, the cops did not do a thorough investigation. So I don't know if it was because there was there, the mob was involved. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. What did your dad do for work? My father was retired at the time. He had a big auto parts business. Okay in Brooklyn that my grandparents started from 1938. He was really well-known. He was kind of like a like a uh, celebrity. So a lot of cops knew him and stuff, too, but he was retired at that time. So he had connections. Oh, yeah. So there's so many plausible things that could have taken place that the cops did not want to get their noses too far into it. Yeah, yeah. So, hmm. Well, plus there That's, probably wasn't procedures like there are now. I mean, now 95. Yeah, 95. Yeah. Yikes. But so, there was so much. Like, my father's car disappeared, and then when it came back a couple days later, it was clean. There was, like, nothing in it. So I think that maybe she was killed someplace else and then uh, and then moved in that car. Also, my father my father had left my mother the year before, and then they got back together uh, for a woman who, who had mob connections, and she had threatened my mother. So it's like, well, perhaps... Mm. that happened perhaps there was a hit on my mother's life you know my father had threatened my mother with a gun several times in their relationship and then because you know they they'd separate and then get back together in my mind until well big reason why I talk about this work I'd be like well she must be lying not him because why would my mom go back to him if he put a gun to her head and that's why I thought when this happened my father was responsible for this Mm -hmm. so um... Two and a half years is all that he served? Yeah. Wow. And have you talked to him since? Yes. So this is 20-odd something years ago now. Yeah. So So, I want to know more about the court thing first. You you took him to court with your brother. Wrongful wrongful death. death. And there's a whole other story there when you talk about forgiveness. So my brother and I stopped speaking for six years. This was my uh, half-brother. We had the same mom, but a different father. And he could see what was going on, and I couldn't because I was so blinded by my love for my father and and other reasons, but that's the main reason. He wanted to take my father to court for wrongful death right away, and I just couldn't bear it. Uh, and when I made the decision to take my dad to court, I was, I was actually in a two-year master's program in spiritual psychology, and that's where I learned what a healthy boundary was for the first time in my life and things like that. And, and t- deciding to take my dad to court for wrongful death was part of the healing for my brother and I. So all the forgiveness tools I learned to take my dad to court but also forgive him, release him at the same time, I applied toward my brother and I realized that everything I was so angry at him for, like how could he abandon me, I was like, well, as his little sister, I abandoned him. So then I went into deep remorse and I had to learn self-forgiveness and that's why it's a big part of my process too. Hmm. And he and my father didn't show up. He skipped town. We won a $2 million judgment, and he skipped town with my aunt, who he married. And so uh, the, <laughs> there's yeah. your documentary. That right. one right there. Now, was that your mom's sister? Yes, my mom's older sister. And 
did she, did you talk to her about this ever? Because that's really twisted. So for those who missed it, so you're saying that dad shot mom. How long after He moved in with my aunt about a month later. So a month after the murder. And then they got married. He moves in with your mom's sister and get married. Yeah. Wow. And they're still together? Okay, so... When I took my father to court for wrongful death, that was back in 2001. And I have to say, my real healing started to take place when I did that. Because it was the most self-honoring decision I could have ever made, even though I spent a lot of money and my father skipped town. But it was, like, clear. And when we got the judgment, it was clear that what my father did was depraved. And I never saw him again after that. He died in 2004. And now what was the next... So, yeah, go ahead. Your aunt. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, obviously this isn't a court of law here, but it's per, you know, that short a time, that short a time after, and whether he did or didn't at that time, she doesn't know whether he did or didn't yet, Mm because you said it took a year and some or however until they actually went to court. Well, but either way, he took a plea bargain, so he never had to actually be accountable. But I'm saying either way. One month later, and you don't know either way, something was going on, a prior. Yeah, well, there's well, like what we no believe, doubt in my mind. Oh, between the mother, yeah, already, sister, yeah. and or yeah, I mean, you don't know. And, yeah, what is it going to be? Oh, uh, you know, I feel so sorry for. So him. do you His think she was involved? Shot. Is that what you're suggesting? I the think, aunt was involved yeah. somehow too. Again, I don't know for sure. Brenda, do you I think the aunt was involved somehow so here, too? Here's a little backstory. So my father left that other woman the year for that other woman the year before, but then my mom and my dad got back together. But during that last year, when they were together before she died, my mother was like a prisoner in her mind. She kept thinking he's going to cheat and all that. So she she was with him. They were together twenty four seven. And my mom was this free spirit spirited artist who had lots of friends who did not want my father, this alpha male Guido kind of hanging around. And so pretty much the only person they would go to see was my aunt on Long Island because, you know, my parents were married 30 years. They knew her. And so they'd go visit her. And my cousin was living there at the time. So there were definitely times when my mother would be off talking to my cousin and my father and my aunt were talking together. Mm -hmm. So... The other thing is my other aunt, who I'm very close to, who hardly ever makes it into any of my talks because we get along. (laughs) This is your mother's other sister? Yeah, her younger sister. At one point, we had a talk, her, my brother, and I, and we believed that they probably had an affair at least one years before. My father and that aunt were sex addicts and have had a lack of conscience. Yeah, and that's more what I meant. Some sort of involvement together. I don't yeah. I'm not necessarily saying your aunt was involved in with your right. with your mother by yeah. any means. Although but, a lot of people would think that, but because but, she came Yeah, I'm just saying that the the odds of your aunt being attracted to a man that's in that scenario. My father had money. Without, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. So lots of moving parts here. Um so the wrongful death uh that suit you feel like this was part of your process of forgiveness he, no it was part of my process for yourself of standing up for myself but and like forgiving yourself for not being more standing up to my father it was part of my process and standing up to him because i didn't have the strength i guess to set boundaries with him because i would talk to him then i would not talk to him this is the whole misconception about forgiveness it'd be like well if i'm going to forgive him i have to talk to him but i i actually the way i teach is like do not put yourself in a position where you're talking with someone 
because if they show no remorse, they take no responsibility, no. So for me, I thought I'd take him to court, I'd get the answers I so desperately wanted, mm-hmm. and my inner child was like, yes, and I'll see my dad, and everything will be okay, but instead, he skipped town, and I never saw him again, so I feel like because I took that stance, the boundary set in. He didn't want to pay the judgment, and so he left. Mm-hmm. So was, was that judgment ever enforced? Nope. It oh, was never Oh, the legal system. No, because, well, my father had a... <laughs> but you said he had money. He and did. he had the auto, and he auto parts business. Every, well, he was retired. Okay. He transferred everything into offshore accounts, which is what criminals do. He put his main um, house in Florida, same place OJ went, where they protect your initial, you know, your prime, premier, uh, primary, primary property. Primary yeah. yeah. And so he so moved we to Florida. And then he died in 2004. Huh. So you never saw a dime out of that, and how much did you end up spending on the all the legal fees for that wrongful death? Over ten thousand dollars. Over ten thousand, and your brother and you—you you were both. I, ironically, that money came from my mother's the inheritance, mm-hmm. so I felt like it was what I wanted to do at the time. I was—I hadn't done all the work, the inner work that I've that I've done now. Would would I spend it now? Maybe, mm-hmm. but it was like because I was unconscious, it was like. Still following my inner guidance, I need to find out what happened. But there was that need. Now mm-hmm. with all the work that I've done, I've learned to not be attached to anything. You know, Was part of the w- process when you were going through this, did you feel any guilt? Not that I'm saying you should have, but like you left and shortly then after you leaving, this all happened? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, oh my, I felt such a, such a good question. That's why I teach so much about self-forgiveness. I felt so much guilt because, remember, I, t- I was the emotional caretaker. I was there, kind of like uh, the energy between them. And as a matter of fact, the week that my mom died, I was on vacation from my job, and they were fighting so much. I was going to go back to see them, and I was like, no, you guys fight too much. I can't be in that energy. And so then I felt guilty because what mm-hmm. if I was there? And I remember having a conversation with my brother, and he's like, if you were here, maybe you would have been in the middle of them, and you would have been killed. Yeah. You know, we never know, we never mm-hmm. know what was going to happen. So then I had to, you know, forgive myself for that, forgive myself for trusting my father, for loving him, you know, and then doing all the reframing around that. Mm-hmm. And so the work that you do now, just how, how would you describe that work? Let me let you describe it yourself. I feel like the work that I do now, it's a mixture of forgiveness and storytelling, releasing shame and then embodying what you've lived through to help heal yourself and heal others. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you do that thing? Because you mentioned you went back to school. And so how is there a particular yeah. like Brenda framework? There kind of is, there is like, a Brenda what? Edelman method. I have yeah. to tell you there really is. Uh, well, I was an actress Already. So so what happened was about three years after my mom died, <coughs> I was so filled with shame. I was so afraid. I felt like such damaged goods because of what happened with my parents. I'd broken up with my fiance. Honestly, I feel like it was because I felt like I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to, while I was going through everything, I felt so unlovable. And then I was in this top acting class in LA and there was a an exercise, a storytelling exercise to just be real. And I was terrified. This was before I did any inner work, but I had a divine inner knowing because I I did absolutely have an experience with God, spirit, whatever you call it, right after my mom died. And I got this knowing that I need to tell my story on stage. And so because I was an actress, I wrote one of my poems where I confront my dad into a three-person scene. And that was like the beginning of what is now my critically acclaimed show. So I put it on stage and 
all of a sudden, I got a standing ovation, a hundred person class, but I also had people share about things they had been ashamed of. Oh man, you know this is gonna this is like totally off topic, and that's awesome that you you did that. Have you seen Barry? Do you watch the show Barry? No. Oh, you got to check out the show Barry. Oh. So, do you guys watch Barry? Uh-uh. Anybody? Am I the only one? Really? Okay. Um. So Barry is a show on HBO. Uh, Barry is Bill Hader from Saturday Night Live. Oh. If you know Bill Hader, maybe sort of, kind of. Okay. Um, but anyway, it's there are some similarities between what you're describing and what uh, one of the main characters in the show wow. went through. Because it, it's like theater and and Henry Winkler, right? The Fonz. Oh. Uh, oh, is that his show? Oh. Well, he's a co- Yeah, yeah, I just read an article Star about it. Mm-hmm. of that show, co-lead, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so he's like this really accomplished acting coach, so to speak. So he brings his students through this process and whatnot. Anyway, the Bill Hader's girlfriend has uh, a scene where she's talking about how she was almost choked out by her boyfriend. And anyway, just this whole cathartic experience of sharing that on stage Mm -hmm. and then how everybody responded to her actually being real Mm -hmm. about what had happened and what's happened for her since. It's just just that in and of itself is probably worth it for you just to watch. Oh, yeah. How... It's what I do, and it's what I teach other people to do, yeah. too. It's amazing because it, it's in the not sharing of it that we mm. feel shame. And I also teach the forgiveness process I learned at that master's program so that – because I did – I kind of did everything wrong. I put it up, and people responded, and, and I had a show in L.A., and then I'd go home and be miserable and kind of want to kill myself because I hadn't done the inner work. And mm. so That's I teach – a lot of comedians, a lot of actors, oh, yeah. a lot of – I mean, you see yeah. that all the time. So it's like you don't want to put everything out there. I I teach how do you nurture your inner child? How do you care for yourself while you're putting your story out there? And mm-hmm. how do you not like put it all over people, but you share your emotions in an appropriate way all out, but while you're taking responsibility for yourself? You know what's interesting about that too is you hear the phrase forgive and forget. I know, and I don't believe that. Yeah, because I kind of like how – but there seems like there would be a fine line. One, if you're telling the story over and over again, you obviously can't forget it. Not that you're supposed to forget it anyway. But how do you, where's the fine line where you can tell the story, it was the story, but now that story's not telling itself over and over again and you can do the new things you're here to do. Yeah, that's so exciting for me that you're bringing this up because that's the whole thing. It's so multidimensional. And so I did, I lived through everything. I lived through putting it all out there, people making people laugh and cry and then being miserable. Then I learned, then I, you know, wasn't filling up the space of the theater and I didn't know why. And it was because I hadn't healed my inner child stuff. And then it was, it's like, at some point, because I'm a trained actress too, you have your witness there. It's not 1995. It's not 2000. So I'm, as an actress, because this is what I teach too, being open, being vulnerable, really being in the moment, but you are not that moment. We are not back there. So that there's a process of like putting it all out there on stage. I remember the very first production I did what was hard for me, and a lot of actors have this and presenters, is they, they want to take care of the audience or they want to make them laugh. And so what I would do, because I have one scene specifically where I, where I act out wanting to kill myself because I was so depressed, and, um, and I wouldn't go fully there because I was like, oh, I, 
I, I don't want to put that on them. But then what I realized as I did my inner process is like I'm doing it to service because the energy gets stuck for me and it gets stuck for the audience. And then when I realized that, I put it all out there. And then, of course, I'm an actress. I'm healthy. I pull it back. I have the awareness. That's why the show is so powerful. I have the awareness on stage so that everybody has that catharsis with me. It takes training, skill, and being consciously aware. Mm. But in that part of going in and taking responsibility and taking care of yourself, it's kind of messy. Oh, yes, it's messy. It is messy. Yes. And some people, you know, just like, ah, oh, I don't want to do the messy. And then how exhausted you are afterward. And that's why for some people it's great for them to be in the audience because they can have that experience of healing. Because I have a forgiveness ceremony right in my show. They can have that feeling of healing without having to go all in. The people that I work with are ready. They're ready. They know that their joy, because that's really what I think it is, is on the other side of not being able to kind of have a catharsis. So how long is the process for any particular person? I'm, I'm sure there are depths and breadths to the experience that they're trying to heal. Yeah, and depending on how where they are when they come to me, right? Because I teach in person and I, ter uh, and I teach online. I have an online program. So like, for example, I just did my first, I've done classes on how to create a one-person show, but I just did my first six-week Healing Through Story Tell Yours class in North Park with my spiritual community. And it took six weeks to get them to an eight to 10 minute story, like finding the story and going super deep with the story. Like it was great for me because I got to give them the healing tools right there and the acting tools. And then we put a showcase on that was sold out and moved everyone and the people were healed. So that's really short, but I had them in person. When I work with my clients online, especially my VIP clients, it took me years and years and years to do this because what happens is I would start writing my story and then I'd be too emotional and I'd run the other way. Sure. Everybody does that. They do that with, you know, whenever they're telling their story. They're like ready and then they feel like crap. So what I do is I have the container of three to six months where I help them craft it so they're crafting it like a pro and I help them with the emotional stuff so that when that comes up and it will, I can say, okay. Let's get underneath that. Let's apply loving to those parts inside that hurt. And I don't make anyone say anything they don't want to share. I encourage, but I don't make anyone do that. So what kind of feedback do you get from in-person or online students about the process? And is it sustainable or is there a part of it that they're healed in that one pocket for good? You know what I've learned? I'll speak for myself, but... Like, I, I get so many people extremely grateful because they didn't know. They didn't know how to tell their story and feel okay about it. They didn't know how to act it out so that it was real. But I think while we're in this body, it's a lifetime process. Yeah. And I think there's more things. Because I just came back. I did a tour of my show in Mexico. And then I was in Albuquerque and I was in Torrance. And, um, and Torrance? Yeah. <laughs> I came back uh, at the cultural center. And, um, okay, to me, growth is a lifelong process. So in, in, in Father's Day last year, I had this awareness that I wanted to go shooting, target shooting. I'd gone target shooting with my dad all those years ago, and I hadn't take, lifted a gun since then. Mm. And so a friend of mine took, took me to a shooting range, and I shot... And there was one, if you've gone target shooting, there was one sheet that looked like kind of an alpha male kind of thing. And mm. I brought it home thinking, hmm, maybe I'll use it in my show. 
and I had it stuffed in one area in one of my rooms. And then everything, I was stuck in my life. Like, I kept being stuck. And all of a sudden, like, December, I'm like, I think I have to do a fire ceremony around that target sheet. So I did a fire ceremony, released it. Something opened up. This is all these years later where an anger released I didn't even know was there, and a sadness came in. Then I go to do the show in Mexico, not anticipating anything to be different. I've done my show for over 12,000 people. I go to do the show, and at this moment where... I'm told that my mother is killed. I try to bring presents to every show I do. I know it's a different audience, but I pretty much do it the same way. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, instead of having that anger, I, I literally broke down sobbing, sobbing. My heart had opened so much from the healing I had the month before. And if I wasn't as skilled an actress or healer, I swear I would have just lost it on stage and just been crying. But instead, I kept going till, till the end. And what they say is actors try to... Co- cry real people don't so I was trying not to cry for the rest of the show and what happened was it was one of the most profound experiences I ever had on stage the people had but I got off stage and I was like I want to kill myself this is horrible Mm. and I was I actually I have a 35 minute version of the show so I do it with two other women that's what we were doing and and a woman has to come on after me and try to make the audience laugh and it was hard for her and so I'm like okay what can I do here? I know I have to nurture my process. I can't change lines. It's brilliant acting. So the next day, you know, I, I go again and it happens again and I break down. But I know that I have to honor my process. But then it came to me. It was right in the script that after that initial sobbing in real life, I said I had an experience of God, like divine presence. And in my story all these years, I've always talked about it. I haven't acted it. And I'm like, what if I act it? What if I show that out on, uh, show it on stage instead of tell? And so the next night I did that, and it was incredible because it lifted the energy from that heavy space to this open space that I had never experienced before. And then that, and then the, the other actress was able to bring people to this like ah, amazing place. So I think whoever says you're done, I don't. They just haven't lived long enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I have a quick question there. At first, I thought it was a one-person show, and then I heard you say, no, it was a three-person, oh. and then I didn't know if it was a three-act okay. or is this separate things okay. because I didn't know. You know, I, I I was thinking to myself, well, maybe she saw this thing, and that's when she was performing the other character, but it sounds like there's okay. someone else. Yeah, let me explain. Okay. So it's it's my one-woman show called My Brooklyn Hamlet, appropriately, because it's a reference to uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's an hour-long show that I've performed for many years. I met uh, this woman, Mariana, through someone who saw my one-person show here in San Diego a couple of years ago, and I told her what my show was about, and she was the kind of mastermind. She has a storytelling event up in Long Beach. She was the mastermind behind putting like a 35-minute, 40-minute piece. She's she's an award-winning storyteller, and so is this other woman's an award-winning one-person show artist like me. She put the three of us together, so we each do about 35 to 40 minutes of our show, and it's called Divas in Danger, and that's what I've been touring with for the last few years. So it's about escape, betrayal, and budget plastic surgery. (laughs) So mine's the betrayal piece. So it's still my show, but it's an abridged version, which is kind of cool because I don't have to do all the tech so I can kind of do it anywhere. Mm-hmm. But we, we were touring. Got it. So let, let, let me ask you this, try to bring it back then to how we can help our audience from the standpoint of forgiveness and some things, practical things that they can, that they can do. 
And, you know, I am personally of the mindset that the, the past doesn't serve you. And, I mean, it, it shapes us into who we are. But for those who go to counseling, as an example, I just, I have a problem with that. Like, mm-hmm. I, I have, I just, I don't see it as being beneficial to rehash things or try to resolve things that are not impacting you, like, right now, today. Like, if I burn myself with the iron, I burnt myself with the iron, but it doesn't mean I have to go back and continue to be like, oh, remember that time I burned myself with the iron? How Let's did that like, happen? Let me try it again. Oh, right, it does still hurt, even in that same spot, right? So I'm just of the mindset that we can move forward powerfully. We can remember what happened and we can be aware of what happened and we can avoid those mistakes or whatever you want to call it, if, if possible, right in the future. Mm-hmm. But how does how does forgiveness in terms of your approach to what you teach, how does where where is that line between going backwards and going forwards? Okay, there's no going backwards under my watch. All right. It's never about indulging in the past or indulging about the emotions, but in my belief system, you have to touch the emotions because the emotions are where the healing takes place. Otherwise, everything is mental. I'm a, I'm a coach, not a therapist, because I yeah. agree a lot with you. It's like, if you, because I know people have been to their therapist, they're going to a therapist for 10 years and they're not moving anywhere. So mm-hmm. it's, that to me is, can be indulging in the emotion. However, I believe that I, I don't believe you have to rehash it, but I feel like, and I have so much experience myself, but from people I work with, that if you keep having in the now negative experiences, attracting toxic people, not earning the money that you want to, not finding the passion, that the key is always in the past. Mm-hmm. So it's not about reliving it, but it's like accessing, well, where did that happen? You don't even have to do like mental talk about it. Like there's someone I follow who has such a wonderful process, uh, the presence process by mm-hmm. Michael Brown. Oh yeah. It's like just do some conscious breathing into yep. that. Just kind of release it where it's stuck in your body, right? Because so you don't have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. The reason I talk is because I'm helping people carve out their stories, but my work is about based on the theme of your life mm-hmm. and getting through it. So I mean, and I can see how telling your story is incredibly powerful and potentially empowering for those that hear your story. The stories I've heard because I've told my story are like amazing. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, from that standpoint, you're obviously doing a huge service to others by bringing that back to the surface and reliving that. And obviously, as you said, reliving it in in a very real way emotionally connected way for you. So I guess what I'm wondering is... But I'm is, the only person on stage, so I'm not, like, reliving it like, and there's my dad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, like, still on a stage with 100 people in the audience. I, I guess yeah. what I'm what I'm wondering, what my real question is, there's a fine line between doing things that are of service to others and helping them and empowering them, mm-hmm. and the flip side of that, which is by empowering them, you're actually doing any sort of harm or holding yourself back right Right. so do you ever feel like you're continually reliving this you know to tell the story to empower others but it's not serving you 
Is there? How does that? How yeah, does I that used land? to in the past, and I take it. I take years off at a time because I'm like, I don't. You know, I, I would feel not that I was being hurt because I've done all the inner work, so it doesn't feel like that. You know what? When I get on stage, I'm like, ooh, I get to play. I get to express myself. I get mm-hmm. to. Release my anger in in an appropriate way in stage toward my father, and it's done. But like, do you still carry that anger? Like, is this something you feel no, like you actually? Absolutely not. Toward my father, I can say absolutely. So you're literally There's just a... acting at this point. Yeah, it's like when you watch a movie. I can understand how it would be difficult for people because it's my story. But don't you have any rich stories that you have that in the moment? I have rich who has stories. I don't need my <laughs> own stories. Well, I mean, you have your, you have your version mm-hmm. of that i mean you're on stage mm-hmm. and you're not you're performing yet not performing yeah yeah you know and, and you go through talk about history and past things and but things this isn't my happened. mom being shot no no of course of course dad. but i feel like that's why it's so effective because it's the dramatic nature of my thing i have to tell you i feel like i'm on purpose mm-hmm. and be, but the inner work is the most important thing for me. It's like, so I got that master's degree in spiritual psychology, but then, you know, I've listened to Ajashante and Eckhart Tolle and done shaman work and healing. Like, if I feel stuck, I have the support and I take full responsibility for it. So (laughs) it's not necessarily a laughing matter, but But it makes me, it makes me think of this because it's almost like because she does that, I'm talking to Steve now. I'm not. I, I know you're stand, sitting here right next to me. Um, because she does that, it's like she gets to practice forgiveness over and over yes. and over yeah. again. Yeah, it's like right. layers. Like I wouldn't have gotten to that. Like if I would have had that healing thing that happened in December in my home, but then not gotten on stage, that next level of heart opening wouldn't have happened. So I, I guess what. Like, so here's a lighthearted version. Please. I'll Because I'll forget <laughs> this. I'll forget this. I suck at meditation unless it's like moving meditation. That's because you can't quiet your mind. Right, exactly. Yeah. And But it, when it's moving, I'm doing just enough, like Qigong or something, I'm doing mm. just enough that I can quiet my mind. But then it hit me one day, like, wait a minute, the whole goal of meditation, different people say different things. Is it really to quiet your mind or is it to learn to come back to center? And then just changing the way my perception looked at it I then allowed myself to go, oh, when I'm sitting there and I say, oh, I better hurry and finish this real quick. I got to go to Sprouts or yeah. my left butt cheek's hurting or whatever the <laughs> thing is. You know, I go, it's just more practice. It's more at bats for me to practice going back to center. So who cares for how long I can do it? There's always going to be something like Mary says that's going to hit you blindside somewhere in life. Mm-hmm. So it's really just it's another at bat to practice, you know, one more time. Mm-hmm. So it's. I, I get the question, but I think... And I also teach people not to be a victim. But yet, the first step of my process is indulging in being a victim so that it doesn't carry through to the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So what, what else is in that process okay. then? So the yeah. first step is moving out of denial and into acceptance of what is, because for me, and for a lot of people, I think, that certainly that I've worked with, not everybody, but... I just wanted to believe what I wanted to believe. I just was like, I can't believe that my father did this. I love him too much. I don't want to lose my whole family in one yeah. night. And in this process was where I vacillated between I love my father, I hate my father, I should forgive, which is, you know, the old way of mm-hmm. forgiveness versus reinvention. And, um, and so what I looked at when I decided to put my three-step process together 
was what kept me so angry. And my anger was always kind of toward myself versus out toward someone else. So for me, it would look like overeating, not having any intimacy, withdrawing versus lashing out. But I looked at why was I so long in that place? And I realized it was because of this first step and not having a healthy release of my anger fully and claiming that I was a victim because we all don't want to be a victim. So then we end up being a victim in relationships or wherever. And so in that first part of my process, there's an exercise I have. Uh, it's a healthy release of anger, but you are identifying why you are such a victim, why your life is so bad, what this person did to you fully. And then I have a process in step two. Wait, which hold is, on. Just in step one and going back, do you find that most people, when, they're, when their lives aren't what they want it to be, do you find that most people, at least in your experience of the people that you've worked with, that they lay that blame on someone else? Yes. You do. Mm-hmm. There's almost oh. always. Oh, yes. Okay. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. I, oh, I'm sure you're the coach too. Wouldn't you always say usually people are blaming someone else? Oh, no, yeah. Barely what, anyone. Ninety-eight percent. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, it's there. But are, we're taught that this is the thing. Nobody really teaches you. I believe this is what I tell my clients. Nobody wants to take responsibility because it feels so bad. It feels like you're going to die. If like mm-hmm. when I was mad at my brother and I'm like, well, he's wrong. He's wrong. Cause it's almost like he can deflect the pain. And then when I took responsibility, I felt like I was going to die, but this is where people beat themselves up. Why didn't I do this sooner? Why did I do that? And I say, when you're tempted to judge yourself, that's really a call for love. So if they just knew that if you took responsibility, you can then also forgive yourself, that would be the key. Like, just know, take that responsibility. Yeah. I might have missed this, or it, and it could just be part of what the process does, but what is your actual definition of forgiveness? It's letting go of the burden of holding on to the resentment you have towards someone else. I would say that's the clearest thing in this moment that's coming out. So my process in step two, which is after you've been a victim and after you're like, they're so wrong, look what they did to me. And people have gone through horrible things, much worse than what I've gone through. Uh, You know, acknowledge that. Care for yourself. There's inner child's work in that stage. And then step two is giving up your need to be right. Step three is... Step two, I want step, to make sure. Step two is giving up your need to be right. So in step one, you're like, yes, I'm a victim and they're so wrong. Step two, after you do all the exercises, is and, and where you're going to is giving up your need to be right. And of course, the adva- in the advanced course, there's nothing to forgive. But, um, but then this is a way to forgiveness. So in step two, when it's giving up your need to be right, is where how I was taught and what I do is forgiving the way we hold judgments. So we're not forgiving the person, but it's like, I forgive myself for judging myself. Here's one I did. I forgive myself for judging myself as out of control because I gained 20 pounds when my father came back into my life. Mm -hmm. I forgive myself for judging my father as an evil monster, for taking my mother's life. What's the truth? And then when I can, getting to the reframe. The reframe is he took her life. There's no, like, the story, it's like letting go of the story around it mm-hmm. because that brings in openness and expansiveness, but I think people hold on to that anger, that unforgiveness, because they don't know how to set a healthy boundary. They don't know that if they forgive, they can also take their father to court. And then step three, I used to say it was having gratitude for what happened, but I don't necessarily think that anymore because there's just too much abuse that happens, but it's having gratitude for your resilience knowing Mm. how strong you were to get through that. And then part of that and the exercises (coughs) 
our being of service. Yeah. Yeah, gratitude for your resilience, I think, is a much better yeah. reframe on that for sure. Um, thank you for sharing the, the steps. Let me just take, uh, you know, I don't know where this falls in the steps exactly, but, I mean, when when people are, are dangerous, like, I, I wouldn't, my wife and I have been married since 1997. She's never met my brother. Oh. My kids have never met my brother. I wouldn't want them to meet my brother because I think he's a dangerous person. So um, where where does forgiveness come into play when there are people who are legitimately dangerous? Yeah, well, remember, you're not forgiving them. You're forgiving and letting go of releasing the burden of resentment you have against them so they no longer have uh, power over you when they're not in your life. Mm. So it's setting healthy boundaries always. If someone's dangerous, my father was dangerous. If someone's dangerous, you don't have them in your life. So it's it's readjusting the definition of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. It's not condoning. It's yeah, never it's, condoning. It's the exact word I was just going to use. You're not condoning the behavior. No, and you're, you're being smart about yeah. setting boundaries. But you forgive without involving that person. Oh, yeah. You don't even ever have to. I forgave my dad, and it was all an energetic thing. I spoke to his spirit. I mm-hmm. uh, wrote, you know, forgiveness of judgments down. I did a healthy release of anger, you know, mm-hmm. burned burned what I wrote. You know, I did a ceremony of release. It was releasing the power I was giving him by keeping him alive that like anytime I thought about him, I was pissed off. Well, he's not doing that anymore. I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. But But if I let go of right and wrong, you know, we think... How can I let go of that? But the truth is, it's like worrying. Well, when you're worrying, it's not helping anything. You saying, oh, that's so wrong. The only thing it's doing, like even when I say that, it makes my body contract is causing upset within myself. Mm-hmm. So in the last few minutes here, and then we'll have to wrap, let me just make sure that I'm giving you the opportunity to just, if there's any other And I'm sorry insight, about your brother. I'm not. All right. You know, I, I, what am I? I'm, I'm grateful for the resilience. Is that yeah. it? Yeah. There yeah, we go. Good. So, um, good. so anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about as it relates to forgiveness or any tips or strategies? I just really feel like it all comes down really that it, it's an inside job. It's self forgiveness. It's knowing that you can trust yourself again. That's a big thing. People don't know how to trust themselves again if their spouse cheated on them, someone stole money from them, you know, it's like going back and creating that relationship with your, I've done a lot of inner child's work, like with that part of you that that just is scared and and doesn't trust you anymore. Well, when you create that dynamic with this part of you that knows everything, then you're going to start making wiser choices and start making self-honoring choices when you love yourself instead of beating the shit out of yourself for the choices you've made. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you you have your one woman show. You're still doing that pretty actively. It's yeah. pretty amazing. So this other group we're called Divas in Danger. I think I said that uh, we you know I've been really active with them, and then I have a lot of people locally who really want to see the show because I've been traveling with it. And so I'm in talks to bring it to San Diego in June. Mm. I'm doing a my next tell your uh, healing through story tell yours six week uh, program is going to happen here in town. Starting the first Thursday in June, I teach a once a month uh, class on how to create a one person show at the Writers Inc. And I have an online program, how to create, promote, and profit with a one person show that I'm doing mm. live. That's a 12 week thing starting June first. Yeah. Do you um, do you know Ted McGrath? Have you guys? Ever I know connected? of him, but okay. I haven't connected yeah. with him. Yeah, it just reminds me. Oh right, because he has know, a show. Because he does a, a one person show. Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, obviously, this isn't 
for everyone because I think a lot of people are terrified of the idea of being on stage. But maybe in that terror is where you find a lot it, of those breakthroughs happen. Oh, my God. Do you know when I just did this showcase, <laughs> all of the people in it were terrified. They were so scared. I they bet. were like because they're telling their personal stuff. But I've been there. So I'm able to say, that's OK. You mm-hmm. got this and just be you. And it's OK if it's not perfect. So I keep wondering, like, my I'm scared to death of heights, and the idea of jumping out of a plane has always been sort of appealing, but I know I'm, like, way mm. too chicken to skydive. You sound like me. And, I, and so I have a friend who was pretty much the same way, just terrified of heights, just, you know, but wanted to break through it. And his experience after having jumped from the plane, and he did it uh, twice that one day, first just to do it, and then second to see if he would be any less terrified the second time. Well, he wasn't any less terrified <laughs> the second time. <laughs> so never, never, ever, ever doing that again. But I just I just wonder, like, is there, is do you find that that's the case? Like, the people are just so terrified, but that terror doesn't go away? Or oh. Well, first of all, they were so proud of themselves. Oh, my God. They were so proud of themselves. I find for myself, sometimes the terror is still there. Mm -hmm. It depends sometimes. I'm trying to figure it out why some audiences. I mean, because I've had hard audiences, you know, youth at risk, women prisoners. Sometimes when the audiences mean so much to me, I get scared. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I get on stage, I'll actually try to do a prayer so that I can remember it's not me that does the work. It's spirit that does it. Mm -hmm. And then I don't get scared. And once I'm on stage, I'm not scared. You know, it's so interesting. It's kind of a tie together with all those things you just said, both of you. I used to be afraid of heights, too. And then my happy medium from jumping out of a plane became bungee jumping. (laughs) So then I did it 52 times and 53 actually. Um, And I asked myself the same thing. I did it the second time to see if I was set. And then I realized it was in the jump. Because it's new every time. It was just, I wasn't actually afraid when I was falling. Mm -hmm. It was jumping. Mm -hmm. That was the scary part. It was right before. Mm -hmm. So, and, and then... Not as much experience of you as at acting, but enough to know that energy kind of just gets channeled. Right. But you're more afraid it's right, right before. before. I hate that yeah. right before. Then, so it is somewhere in that just jumping yeah. and just going for it. Well, let's do this. If people want to connect with you, Brenda, best places for them to go. Well, what uh, I am on Facebook, Brenda Edelman. That's the easiest way. I have a free gift for your sure. listeners. Yeah. Let me see if I can remember the URL. It is we'll my... We'll forgive you if you don't. <laughs> oh, I've heard that so much. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm fine. That's okay. Uh, so my website is forgivenessandfreedom.com. And then I have a free... Uh, PDF version of my book, My Father Killed My Mother and Married My Aunts, Forgiving the Unforgivable, which has my three-step forgiveness process in it. Mm. It is brendaedelman.lpages.co slash, okay, wait, ebook. Oh, we'll put darn. it in the show notes. Yes, yeah, we'll have to you. put it in it's the like show notes. Ebook, we'll, you send it to us. It's special something. One of those things. All right, we'll put it. Yeah, okay. I got it. We'll put it. We'll put it in the okay, show notes. Okay, because otherwise it's for sale on Amazon. <laughs> All right, sweet. Yeah. Now, what a what a incredible story. Um, I mean, you talk about just resilience, and I can't even. Can't even imagine. Uh, just it's all the different pieces there of that of that puzzle that you've somehow put together and, and found a way to make all of this work for you. So thank you. 
Awesome having you here. Thanks so on much. On Reinvention Radio. Keep us posted on the, the one-woman show my and all Brooklyn that fun stuff. My Brooklyn Hamlet and all that other fun stuff that you've got going on there. Kelly so. made a link. Kelly made oh, a link. Yay. There we Reinventionradio.com slash forgiveness. There we go. Reinventionradio.com slash forgiveness. All right. There we go. Thanks, Kelly, for that. From Mary Goulet and awesome. Richie Ote and Kelly, who put it together there right quick for you at reinventionradio.com slash forgiveness. White White holding it down the studio. Brenda Edelman, thank you so much for joining us here on Reinvention Radio. I'm Steve Olsher. Talk to you next time. You just got dismantled. Thanks for listening to Reinvention Radio. For more information about the show and your host, Steve Olsher, visit reinventionradio.com. One person has the power to change the world, impact millions of lives, and leave a legacy for lifetimes to come. That person is you. In the New York Times bestseller, What is Your What? Steve Olcher, award-winning author and founder of the Reinvention Workshop, reveals his proven process that has helped thousands of men and women discover, share, and monetize the one thing they were born to do. Grab your free copy now at www.whatisyourwhat.com slash free. That's www.whatisyourwhat.com forward slash free.